God's turn with me to John chapter 18. John 18, we'll begin with verse 1. This is the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, having Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed them, also stood with them. Now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that, they may, uh, that the saying may be fulfilled which he spoke. Of all those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray together. Fathers, we assemble to worship you, coming with grateful hearts, for you have mercifully saved us, calling us out of the world into yourself, bringing us near through the blood of your Son. Not only that, but owning us as your children. Father, we are here that you would bless us and refresh us, that you would feed us. Lord, open our eyes as we open the text, that we would see Christ as he enters into his hour, as he comes nigh unto the cross, Lord. Gives of understanding, profit us from your word. Bless that which we undertake by your spirit, that he would go forth with the sound of the word as well as our hearing of it, and that you would accomplish all your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning we are entering the fourth and final section of John's gospel. Begin with chapter one, uh, an introduction of uh, something of a prologue, I think is how we referred to it back some year, uh, months back. John tw 2 through 12 is then John's record of our Lord's ministry. And then we entered into the upper room, John 13 through 17. We see Jesus alone with his disciples, preparing them for his departure. And now we come to chapter 18, 18 through 21, which focuses on Jesus' death and his resurrection. As A.W. Pink notes, John's gospel account closes with a distinctive character. The note is quite different from what is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John's closing scene, suffering is recorded, but the focus is on the dignity and divine glory of God. Jesus Christ, the God-man Jesus Christ. Suffering's here, but John's focus is on the dignity and divine glory of the God-man Jesus Christ. 
So much of the focus in the upper room was on Jesus' death that would soon take place. And it was for this reason that he came and not only did the prophets foretell it, but Jesus has foretold it. He has been announcing a time and again he has told his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem, be arrested, and put to death by the authorities. What follows in John chapter 18 to 19 proves that all the foretelling came to pass. Without these events, quoting Pink here, A.W. Pink, none of the precious things that have thrilled the heart in the previous chapters could be possible. We've heard marvelous things of what Jesus came to do, marvelous things of what Jesus accomplished, great promises that he has made, but without what unfolds in chapters 18 and 19, the arrests, the wrong accusations, the crucifixion, none of those things could be possible. No giving of eternal life. No preparing a place for us in the Father's house. No coming again. No giving of the Holy Spirit. No removal of wrath. No hope. No salvation. No new life. All these and so much more depended upon Jesus' death and his resurrection. There'd be no good news, no gospel. All that would remain is destruction from the Almighty for the children of Adam and Eve. But, but, oh, the glorious but of the gospel. John continues to write what took place that dark night that ushers in, ushered in the glorious light of the new day. All that the prophets foretold and all that Jesus had promised took place and salvation was secured by Jesus Christ, our Lord, on a cross, spilling his blood for the remission of our sins. Before the weekend was over, Jesus had broken the power of death and the grave and hell forevermore for all who believe on him for salvation. Jesus was fulfilling this as a man in his humanity, but no mere man. He was and continues to be the God-man who even now reigns on high above all the nations. Hallelujah. And thus we can see why Paul declares, I seek to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified. This is the culmination. We come to the moment upon which it all hangs, that the hope of our gospel, the hope of our salvation rests. We're going to use four main headings this morning. Jesus betrayed in the garden. Jesus, the great I am. Jesus protects his own. And Jesus submits to his Father. We begin then with Jesus' betrayal in the garden. Verses 1 through 4 lay this out for us. John's account of that night is notable. What we notice is that the Holy Spirit not only moved John to write what he wrote, but also to not write what was recorded in the other Gospels. John leaves out many of the details that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, what we often refer to as the synoptics. Nothing is said of Jesus leaving the eight and taking the three, Peter, James, and John, apart further into the garden that they might watch with him for one hour as he prayed. John does not tell us that as Jesus cried out to the Father, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will, but your will be done. Though John was present, he does not speak of the anguish and the travail of our blessed Redeemer, when in that anguish he was so intense that his sweat appeared to be as drops of blood flowing down his brow. Nor does John tell us that an angel came and ministered to Jesus in the night. 
what we do find are striking details that the other inspired authors have omitted. John was very near to Jesus. We have noted that, that on the, just hours before in the upper room, it was John who laid near Christ, beside Christ, the youngest of the 12 disciples, the one that he refers to himself even in this gospel, the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was one of the three that Jesus took up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was permitted to see Jesus arrayed in something of his glory as God. He was also invited, as we've noted moments ago, to go further into the garden and invited by Jesus to watch and pray. He said to the others, sit here and wait. John was there. John was an eyewitness of what took place that night. And what he writes, he writes with authority. And what John writes is connected to his purpose for writing. These things are written, written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So what's in John's account was written to that end. That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. John presents Jesus as the divine person not so much as the suffering servant, the suffering man, though that is there, and indeed it's essential. Jesus did that too. But first, I want to note three things. First, according to the law given to Moses, the victim for the Day of Atonement, you remember in Leviticus, particularly in 16, there's the culmination that God gives instruction for the Day of Atonement that blood would be shed and carried into the Holy of Holies and put on the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat, so that the people's sins would be forgiven. And that victim that would be used was then offered outside the camp. Not in the midst, but it would be sacrificed up outside the camp. Our Lord Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. And he offered himself, even as we see him doing here in the Garden of Gethsemane, outside Jerusalem, outside the walls. There, the one who is the one that atones for sin. He offered himself. And so it is that the writer of the Hebrews says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. His suffering begin here with his arrest. He being selected and set apart as the sacrificial victim. But then also as it culminates outside the sheep gate, outside the walls of Jerusalem, where he is hung on a Roman cross. He suffered outside the gate for us. Secondly, we want to note that John makes a point of recording that Jesus crossed over the book Kidron as he left Jerusalem. This is significant, something that we might overlook. This is the same brook that King David crossed over when he was shamefully betrayed by his dear friend and counselor Ahithophel, who had thrown in with Absalom in his rebellion to overthrow David from the throne. And as David left with his band, those faithful to him, they crossed over, going out of Jerusalem, over the book Kidron, even as David's greater son and David's savior has done that night. Thirdly, we have heard over and over the desire of the Jews to seize Jesus and put him to death. Often they had uh, 
restrain themselves because, as the gospel writers tell us, they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the mob. They were afraid of the crowd. The, the city was packed, and Jesus had made declarations of being the Son of God and uh, said that he was the Son of God, and they were incensed against him, and they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to seize him, but they were afraid of the crowds, and they restrained themselves, or we should say God working through means restrained them. And so now that Jesus' hour has come, he removed the hindrances of the mass of the people. Here he was outside in a lonely garden, no masses of people around, even though the feast was on, Jesus was there where the Jews could arrest him quietly and secretly, all according to God's appointment. One more thing to observe, and give thanks to A.W. Pink for this. Gardens play a significant and reincurring role in the grand story of Scripture. Remember, it all began in the Garden of Eden. That's where we find Adam and Eve, our, our forebears. Those first image bearers of God are created by God, and they are set in a garden. The story of Scripture begins there, and it ends in a garden. If you read the book of Revelation, the Garden of Eden, always delightful. What happened this night in Gethsemane all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve spoke with Satan. In Gethsemane, Jesus speaks with his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, our Savior begins his suffering to deliver us from sin. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, Jesus triumphed. In Eden, the conflict took place during the day, and in Gethsemane, the conflict was at night. In Eden, Adam fell before Satan. And in Gethsemane, the soldiers fell before Jesus. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath from his Father's hand. In Eden... Adam hid himself. In the Gethsemane, the last Adam boldly showed himself. Notice, he, as we read, he stepped forward to meet them as they came in the dark of night. God had to seek out hiding Adam after he had sinned. But Jesus sought out God in the garden. Adam was driven from the garden. Jesus was led from the garden. And finally, in Eden... A sword was drawn in Gethsemane. Jesus commands that the sword be sheathed, foretelling of the significance of what would happen that night. That sword that kept man out of the Garden of Eden, out of communion and fellowship with God due to the sin of man, Jesus is going to settle that, and the sword will be sheathed, and access full, free, clear, and open will be restored to the sons of Adam, to all who believe. And so it was a momentous night that Judas came seeking the very one that on that night outside, seeking the very one that on the night outside of Bethlehem the angels had announced, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For it is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Judas came to portray that one. So glorious, announced by angels, he came to hand him over to sinful men. And when told in the text, Judas knew the place. He was familiar with it. 
It was a place that Jesus regularly met with the disciples, verse 2 tells us. And when we look at the text, we see Judas is acting as a guide for the band of angry men. And what is Jesus doing? He's coming to portray a friend, one who is, he is set at table with, one whom he's even received the morsel dipped in the cup from. He came, he came with a detachment of troops, even officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they came at night with torches, lanterns, and weapons. Isn't that remarkable? They come in the dark of night with man-made lights seeking him who is the light of the world. And he steps forward to meet them. And these are the men. They are the very forces of darkness. They came as for a criminal. What an insult. What an insult. Later, Jesus said, why do you come with swords? You know, I was in your temple day and night teaching the people. And yet they came with weapons. John tells us that Jesus was not surprised about what took place. Look at verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? How did Jesus know? Well, the prophets had foretold. If you read Matthew's gospel, you will find multiple times where Matthew records what prophets foretold, and then Matthew records the fulfillment of what the prophets foretold in Jesus' life, and particularly in his suffering. It was foretold. We just so recently were in Isaiah 53, where the suffering of the servant is announced. This is what the Ethiopian eunuch quandered over. For whom sin did he die? Jesus understood that he was Jehovah's servant, appointed to suffer for the death of his people. Jesus knew the scriptures. He understood. He knew that one of his own would betray him for the psalmist. David had written of it prophetically that one who set a table, who ate my bread, has lifted up his foot or his heel against me. But Jesus also knew it because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. He was baptized at the Jordan, filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. And so he did as man, fully man, yes, the God-man, but as man he lived in communion and full fellowship with the Holy Spirit who revealed to him all things. And thus it was through the Spirit that he was able to say what he saw, heard the Father saying and do what he saw the Father doing. Notice Jesus steps out. He steps into the light to meet them. It's a dark place. It's, it's hard for us to fathom. We're so used to city lights and, and the uh, light pollution, if some have caused it. If you've ever gone out to look at the stars at night, you, you know the troublesome of that. We're so used to this background light, but there was none of that. If there was no moon, it would have been so dark. And you know, what little light there was from the lanterns would have still made it easy to hide in the shadows. But Jesus steps out to meet them and literally says, who are y'all seeking? It's a plural you. He's addressing the whole of them. This band that has come with malice in their hearts. Here we see, do not miss this, brothers and sisters. Here we see our precious Redeemer ready to do what the Father has given him to do. Ready to keep the covenant that he's made with the Father in eternity past. He steps forward and asks who you're seeking He's ready to be the ransom for many. What's the answer of the crowd? Well, they answer and here in verse 5, this plural verbs, they are answering him. They censored him, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who they're seeking. And Jesus gives the reply, a response 
that's not expected. Notice that John records Judas is present with them. Like them, he does not understand who Jesus is. Judas is blinded by his unbelief. And so he hands over Christ. That brings us to our second point. Jesus answered, Jesus, the great I am, whom are you all seeking? And Jesus answered them simply and yet profoundly. If you look at your text in verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And if you have he, it's an italic because it's not in the original text. It's implied. But what Jesus says is, I am Yahweh. I am the self-existent God. He has made this claim on other occasions. And they wanted to arrest him and stone him even at that point for blasphemy. But he answers with this clarity. Here is Jesus as a prophet proclaiming the good news and making himself known. He does not hide who he is. As the prophet of God, he's come to make known the will of God, our salvation. I am as the name whereby God has announced himself to his people. This is God's name revealing that he is the covenant Keeping God. You will remember that um, I pointed out in the Old Testament when we see all capital L-O-R-D, this is that name, I am. And that name means he's the covenant keeping, the covenant faithful Lord. And that's what Jesus says, I am that one. Even as he's here to keep the covenant he's made with the Father to be the sacrifice for our sins. This is the name that God proclaimed to Moses in the desert when he's far away from Egypt, far away from the people of God. He's been tending sheep for some 40 years. He fled from Egypt as a criminal. He had murdered an Egyptian, and he's just shepherding sheep. And God appears to him, and the bush is burning. And a voice comes to him out of the bush and says, Take off your sandals, for you're on holy ground. And God has a conversation with him. He says, You're to go and lead my people out of Egypt. He says to God, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. This is our God. Independent of all. Self-existent. The glorious God over all. I am. This was the name that Moses then carried to his people. To tell him that I am has met with me. And he's come to lead us out. This I am is the one who is the one that promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give us a land of promise. We have seen throughout John's gospel the I am multiple times. As Jesus fulfills his office, as he accomplishes his ministry, in John 6 we hear that I am the bread of life. When he has fed the multitude, he then proclaims, I am the bread he is saying that the man that sustained their forefathers in the wilderness, he said, I am that bread. Before Abraham was in John 8, he says, I am. John 10, he says both, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. Each of these I am significant. I am those particularities, but ultimately I am the self-existent one. John 11, before the resurrection of uh, Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, I am the vine. Judas stood by and heard Jesus proclaim, I am. 
It was unmoving to him because the spirit had not worked in him. But something beyond and greater force hit him as he with the crowd heard these things. When Jesus said, I am, verse 6, they drew back and fell to the ground. Just the force of the announcement. And we hear what Jesus uh, in the bushes, as God appearing to Moses, said, take off your sandals for you are on holy ground. I am. And Moses had fear. These who have come with no fear, coming to arrest the great I am of God, when they hear his pronouncement, I am, they thrust back is the weight of the word, and they fell to the ground. They lost their footing. They were struck down at the sheer announcement of the glory of the one who stood before them. I am. What a spectacle. Think about it. Here's these strong men. Soldiers are in their midst. They've come armed. They've come with a mission. Strong men, and Jesus speaks, and they, they fall backward. And it's clear where the power came from, from him who spoke. I am the voice of God. Here is a manifestation that Jesus is the Son of God. Here is a manifestation of his deity. It's on full display. Here is Christ the King. With authority he speaks, I am. The great I am who made all things and rules over all things declares, I am. And they fell down, stricken in the presence of the Almighty. My friends, are you redeemed by Christ? Do you see here your King and hear his authority? What are men before this one who is the living God of heaven? He merely speaks but his name, and they are stricken and afflicted and struck to the ground. We need not fear the nations. This one reigns on high, having accomplished the work that John records here. The other gospel writers record, as Psalm 2 tells us, he is seated on high. God the Father has set him on the throne to rule the nations with a rod of iron. What are the nations? As our one elder reminds us so faithfully, regularly, the nations are a drop in the bucket. There is but dust on the scales. This is our king, the I Am. We need not fear men. We need not fear the headlines. Jesus is our I am. Here we see him with authority and strength and even a manifestation of majesty. And yet he will yield himself to accomplish the will of the Father, to go and do this sacrifice for our sin. He, who is the Lamb of God, was taken from outside the camp, tried and then crucified outside the camp. And so we see him as the prophet making great proclamation. We see him as the king, speak with authority, but here we see Jesus as our priest, offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. Indeed, the only sacrifice for sin. We referred earlier to the book of Hebrews and what God inspired that author to write. Earlier in the the book, the author points out If you're seeking another sacrifice, if you're returning to Judaism and all the cultic rituals of the tabernacle and the sacrifice, the author says there remains no other sacrifice. He has gone at lengths to show the the superiority of Christ who is the sacrifice. If you're looking for someone other than Christ, there remains no other sacrifice. Here is our high priest offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sin. And this was Jesus' hour. It had come. This was the Father's plan. Man was acting 
with evil and malice in his heart, fully responsible for what he did, and yet the Father, as the great sovereign God over all, was accomplishing his great purpose in redemption. Here we see these stunned and greatly humiliated men. Uh, they, they pick themselves up from the ground. It's not recorded. They get back up on their feet. And Jesus asks them once more, Whom are you seeking? Verse 7. And they said once again, Jesus of Nazareth. It suggests that there was something of a stunning impact on them. And also, here's a warning. You come out to do this. You just experience the power of God. And whom are you seeking? Are you still about your same purpose? And they were. They said, Jesus and Nazareth. And Jesus resolved to go forward to do what the Father had given him to do is there as well. I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. My friends, let it be well established that Jesus willingly gave himself to save the children of Adam. He came as the life-giving spirit. As through one man Adam sinned, and all sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression, here the second Adam came as life, to give life to as many as belief. Turn with me over to Romans 5. We covered this several years ago. And we revisit it because it's so remarkable what Paul writes here in Romans 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgments which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more through the, the much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as though as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Whereas by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This is what's happening. The second Adam, the one who has come to give life, the he... By his work, we could be declared righteous by God by being united to him. Jesus is that one who has secured our salvation. Jesus says something more in this second exchange that leads to our third point. We just read from the tail end of verse 8. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Which brings us in, thirdly, Jesus protects his own. Here the good shepherd is in a most, we see him in a most critical moment. Just consider this. He is about to be led away to be the sacrifice of sin. He here is the, the partial victim, the Passover lamb, going to be crucified. He knows what's happening. He knows what's coming. And yet in the midst of that, these angry men who have fallen at his pronouncement, I am, he thinks of his own. 
He remembers the 11 who are with him. Those who have been faithful by the grace of God on that dark night, surrounded by men with weapons, Jesus sings to them. And he protects them. He says, if you seek me, let these go their way. There's the shepherd. Isn't it remarkable? Who thinks of such a thing in such a moment? When we're fighting for our life, when everything seems calamitous and, and upended and ending, we, we tend to forget even important things. Jesus did not. As the good shepherd, he thinks of his sheep. Jesus knows the weakness of these men. He's walked with them. He's rebuked them. He's corrected them. He's challenged them. He's seen them grow, and yet he knows they're not prepared. Why are they not prepared for what's about to come? Because it's not the other side of the cross. This is, Pentecost hasn't come uh, when the Spirit comes on mere men in great measure to equip them and fill them. These men are so fearful that night. We will see them in boldness on the day of Pentecost and throughout the book of Acts. But this is not that day. This is a dark night. And Jesus knows their weakness. They're not fit for the fiery trials of the night. The high priest palace the judgment seat of Pilate. Jesus knows that Satan will soon sift Peter like wheat. He wants him, and Jesus has warned him, and indeed Peter will deny him three times. Jesus knows this, and so Jesus says, let them go. And the officers let them go. And here is a fulfillment of what Jesus prayed in John 17, 12, maybe just across the page in your Bible. Jesus is praying to the Father for these men. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so it is. Jesus speaks on their behalf. Let's make an application. We're going to close with some applications, but I just want to make one right here. This is important, too. Dear brothers and sisters, Jesus hasn't changed from who he was that night. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still the good shepherd, and he keeps you in the palm of his hand, and he protects you from what is too much for you, which is everything. We're not sufficient to stand in the face of trials and temptation. And he keeps us secure in his grip. He protects us. And so we need to understand that if trials come and sufferings come, he has appointed them. Because he doesn't want to leave us weak, like squirming infants in our afterbirth. He wants us to grow up and to be mature men and women in the Lord. And so suffering and trials are the crucible that he has appointed for that. But he knows our frame. He knows what we're ready for. He knows what we can endure. And even Peter's trial and that he fails in will be used for Peter's further strengthening down the road. And so, my brothers and sisters, rest in this sure truth. The good shepherd, he knows his sheep. He knows you. He knows your frame. He knows where you're at. And so what he appoints for you is what your good shepherd knows is best for you. And in it, he manifests his love. Well, fourthly then, Jesus submits to his father. 
certainly this runs through this whole account. It's run through his whole life. But here we, we see some events at this point. Jesus has just asked that they could go free, that the scriptures would be fulfilled, uh, what, even what he's spoken, that none of them would be lost. And what's Peter's impulse? There it is. John records it. Remember, he's an eyewitness. He's right there, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, and he cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Remember what we noted, actually, quite some months ago, after Jesus uh, responds to Peter's bold boasting that I'm willing to die with you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows this morning, you're going to deny that you know me three times. And we've not heard a word from Mr. Open Mouth, Insert Foot. He's been silent. And even here, he's silent. But he acts. He takes action. And again, it's that bold, impulsive Peter. He unseats his sword. The scripture word here for the sword, it's a, a short sword. Uh, probably we would think of like a dagger, maybe what many of the men were carrying in the armed band. John tells us that who it was. You read the other gospel accounts, we're just told somebody drew a sword and somebody got an ear cut off. Two of the accounts tell us it was the right ear. But it's John that tells us that Peter, and he calls him Simon Peter, as he most ordinarily does when he speaks to Peter, Simon Peter, and then he names the high priest's servant. Malchus. This instant is remarkable. John writes this, John writing late, the last of the Gospels, after Peter's death. Uh, there's no risk of Peter being arrested. If they ever wondered who was it that took off the ear, uh, he's already gone. He's with the Lord. I often wonder about Malchus, though. One thing that we can be sure of, this detail is given that we know here is a faithful eyewitness account the name of this man was known. We are told that John was known to the high priest's household, and thus he gained access in with uh, when Jesus went in and the trial that ensued in those events, and he took Peter along with him. So John has this uh, family connection, and so he would have probably known some of the servants. But I often wonder if down the road Malchus was converted. And so when the church reads this account, it's like, oh, I know Malchus. I know that brother. We do find that. Paul does that. Um, we, can, we know that about uh, the sons of Rufus who carried the cross. Or no, maybe that was one of the sons' names. But we, we have names recorded and there's a significance. But let us notice that this is a detail from someone who was present. Likewise, the reality that it was the right ear that was cut off. So what happened? Peter, no doubt, emboldened by Christ just saying, I am and all the men fall to the ground. We're not told if the disciples did or not. It's, it's referring to they and them. It would seem from the context that it's the group of men. They fell to the ground. And Peter just sees this display and he decides to draw his short sword and do something with it. In uh, Luke's account, we find out that there were two disciples armed. Two of them had swords. We don't hear the other one drawing, and we're not even told who the other one was. Uh, Peter asked in one of the in Luke's account, he said, should we draw the swords? Because you remember, Jesus asked them early in the evening, do you have any swords? So we have two, it's enough. 
And I can tell you I still don't fully comprehend what all that is about, except what I'm going to say in a little bit. But Peter didn't wait for Jesus' reply as to whether they should draw swords. He pulled out his sword and took off an ear. Think about that. You think Peter said, oh, I'll stop this whole thing. I'm going to cut this guy's ear off. No, I think Peter was going for something more. Peter was familiar with using long fillet knives as a fisherman, and he was a strong man. I think that he might have been going for some greater damage, and Malchus was fast on his feet, and so it's just an ear that he loses. No doubt Peter sought to strike a mortal blow. In verse 11, Jesus answers the question then that was asked, should we draw swords? Peter's already done it. What has Jesus said? He said, put your sword in this sheath. Put it away, Peter. That's not what this is about. And we're told in Luke's account that Jesus placed the man's ear back on his head, healing it, and there would have been no scars. Such was the miraculous power of our Lord in healing. What do we make of this? Why, why does John record this? Well, remember, John's focus is Jesus is the Son of God. There's dignity and divinity on display here. We see again Jesus' power to heal. Even in this critical moment, Jesus is showing compassion to sinners. But he's also showing that he has not come to become king through violence and swords. He's here to yield himself. Even though the disciples do not understand that, he knows his purpose. And what Jesus says in the very next statement reinforces this. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? He took the cup. Not my will, but thine be done. And he drank the cup all the way to the drugs, the dregs, the wrath of God. Jesus might have put up a fight with his swords. Maybe they could have bested some of those men. Maybe they could have escaped, but that's not the point. His hour had come. And this is what God had appointed, that the Jews would arrest him. It's what he's been telling the disciples. The religious authorities are going to seize him. And then, of course, then they take him to the Roman government. Now the arrest is made. What follows, Jesus is the Son of Man, fully submits to the will of his Father. He goes to the cross. Jesus did as he had prayed to the Father, your will be done well I said we'd conclude draw to a close with some applications first flowing from what we have just seen Jesus do namely submitting to God his father let this submission that we see in Christ be our constant goal we are by nature rebels but we have a new heart as a gift from God and we are seeking by the grace of God to be conformed by the word and the spirit to be yielded to be submissive to the will of the Father. We prayed earlier in our service of worship, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. I hope that when you pray that, you're not thinking about the nations, uh, other people, but you're thinking about your own heart. Your will be done in my life. Your kingdom come. In my life, what is the coming of the kingdom of God in the life of one who believes? It's that we become more conformed to the image of the Son. Uh, you children who have been baptized, you're, you're bearing the sign and the seal of God, being part of his covenant community. What is it for you to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? 
is that you would draw near to God as he's drawn near to you. That you would hear the promises God has made to you, children, to be your God. And that you would come to him in repentance, but more especially with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has promised you. And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You see Jesus yielding and submitted to the Father. We should be too. You know, praying the Lord's Prayer is not just a bunch of churchy words that we do every week just because that's our pattern. It's a prayer of desire to submit to God. It's our constant battle, isn't it? To submit to God our Father. It can be the details of our life, but particularly His law. That's why it's so good that we hear it week by week that we're reminded. We have a standard of conduct in God's household. But then we draw near to God again in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has obeyed the Father perfectly, even as we see him doing here, and therefore secured a salvation, shed his blood for the washing away of our sins, our sins of this past week, our sins of this day. But then in the strength of Christ that we should learn to live for his glory, live holy lives, keeping his law, love for God and love for neighbor. Secondly, let us look at Judas. Let's take an honest and a sober look at Judas, every one of us, and understand how exceedingly hard a sinner's heart can be. He was one of the twelve. He spent three years following Jesus. He heard the voice of Jesus preach the good news of the kingdom of God over and over and over again. Not a, a man sent by God, called out and equipped by God to be a preacher of the gospel, but indeed the gospel, the good news himself, the word, the living word of God. He heard Christ preach. He knew Jesus' habits and pattern, and yet he used that intimate knowledge to bring a band of men in the night to arrest one who had been his friend. J.C. Ryle says, From the highest degree of privilege down to the lowest depth of sin, privileges misused seem to paralyze the conscience. The same fire that melts wax hardens clay. There's a great danger to sit under the word of God week by week and not let it have any effect on you. We should come ready to hear the word. We should come desiring to hear Christ. We should come prayerful. We should pray for the minister. We should pray that God would bring the word to bear upon our hearts. It's still amazing to me. We hear mere men, sinful men, with flaws. As, as Paul says, the foolishness of preaching the stuttering and stammering lips of a man, and yet God speaks to his people who come with faith to hear him. And there's a great warning. Judas heard Christ for three years. And his heart just grew harder. Beware that you do not let the fire of the Holy Spirit lead to your hardening. Do not let carelessness and indifference take root in your soul. This is the very concern that the writer of the Hebrews has. We've referred to him now three times. Those words that are so sober, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, think of Judas, 
and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew themselves again to repentance, since they crucified again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let us not be like Judas. Thirdly, let us understand that it is us, you and I, we are the ones that should have been arrested. Children, think about it. You've probably seen some cop show or movies. You see a bad guy finally caught and arrested, put in the head, cops, led astray, you know. And that's what they did with Jesus, in a sense. That should have been you and I. We're the guilty ones. We're the ones that men should have come and arrested and put us on trial. More importantly, that God should arrest and put us on trial. Uh, a perfect judge finding all our faults. It should have been us led away to die. We are guilty. And indeed, we should be in soul anguish over sin. And we should be seeking God and begging for mercy. The blows... The crown of thorns, the slaps, the spitting, the mocking, the beatings, the nails, and the piercing of his side, that should have all been inflicted on us and more. Yes, even the wrath, and especially the wrath of God, that should have been us. We deserve the death sentence. But Jesus was sent into the world to suffer and die in our place. And so he went. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Indeed, let us call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Do you see this glorious one? Do you see Christ here in this dark hour and yet walking firmly in obedience? Do you see Christ willing to take on your sin even as he bears your names upon him? There's none like him. There is none like the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other. Indeed, he is the way. And he is the truth and the life. May his name ever be blessed and praised. Amen. O oh God, our Father, we seek you. We cry out to you. We beg for your mercy, Lord. As we see Christ here being arrested, Lord, we, we recognize that it was for our sakes that he stood in our place, that he was going to shed his blood for our sin. Father, help us that we not be indifferent to these things and become hardened. Lord, may we never, ever, ever grow weary of hearing the gospel. Oh, Lord God, we bless you and praise you for your Son, our Savior. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you were obedient even unto death of the cross, and that you came forth victorious. We praise you, O Holy Spirit, that you have opened our eyes, worked in our hearts, given us a new heart, that we should look to God, our Savior. We bless you, triune God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing.